Today's text is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that, he, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, for things that are beyond our comprehension. Lord, we're so grateful that you give these things to us, that you put them in our hearts, Lord. I pray that the Spirit would open our eyes and please speak through Pastor Kyle this morning. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So good to see everybody this morning. <clears throat> Just a reminder, too, I don't know if this came out um, when uh, Pastor Creeny was talking, but you can get that book online, the Navigator book, and it comes with little cards that you can like put in your pocket and stuff and different translations. So, um... That might serve you well in that process. So, so it's so good to be here this morning. Also, I, I, I wanted to let you know, too, just the retreats that we have coming up. Anyone who might want to come, please, if, if um, finances are an issue, please come speak to us, and we'll help you the best way that we can. Uh, we want to be that kind of church just generous to you. So if, uh, so if that's your situation, you really want to be there, just please let it be known. Um, and and um, some of us maybe are a little bit more bashful. So if you're a friend of that bashful person and you know they want to come, but they're maybe a little... They wouldn't say anything. Get their permission and speak for them. Be their advocate, okay? Um, just God bless you. And let's just go to the Lord in prayer again. God, you are so good. And we love you. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the people that are here. God, we thank you that each person in this room this morning was created by you in your image. And that they are very, very unique in your creation. God, it is not for angels or for anything else in this created world that you sent your son to die for but us. That has to mean that we have very great value to you. God, we just thank you for this and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a few weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to be going through the book of Acts in its entirety. And it's just really exciting to be going through this. We've seen a bit already about the mission of Christ that Christ puts his people on. Um, and gave to his apostles initially. 
his instructions to wait, remember he told them to wait before they would go out and be his witnesses, their obedience to him and their devotion of prayer in the interim. These are some things that we've looked at already. And I want to go back a little bit in Acts chapter 1 and rehearse um, why we started this study and backtrack in our text to consider more of chapter 1 and in particular the ascension of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you if this is you and this helps you, uh, take notes. Uh, I would encourage everybody to bring a Bible. I know this is the technological um, Disney world, right? You know, so we all have iPads and these things are helpful and you can still use those. But it's so helpful to just have a Bible and flip through it because it's, you're going to become familiar with how it's laid out, where things are. And honestly, when you just type in Matthew 1, whatever, it just pops right up and you don't really know what it is in a real Bible. So I just encourage bring your Bibles with you. And if you don't have one, you can... Um, Take one of those for free. It's on us um, in the back. Or if you forget yours, um, you can go grab one on your way and just remind you that those are there. Um, so, yeah, again, we're going through the book of Acts. And we're just going to backtrack a little bit and look at the ascension of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Things are happening for us here at Refuge Church. Um, it's, it's been a year since we started. We, have that, we had that really great time together at our party last week celebrating one year of existence. We planted We were birthed a year ago. Um, but we're still planting a new, we're still very, very new. We're still starting a new church in Warren. So the book of Acts has just incredible relevance for us as it concerns basically how the church was launched. The early church, the first church was launched into an urban setting, an educational setting, um, a philosophical and artistic cosmopolitan setting. And, you know, Warren, Rhode Island is not, is not the cosmopolitan center of the world, like Dubai or Los Angeles or New York City, but we certainly are in an area of our country that typifies this kind of mentality. Um, educated, cosmopolitan, progressive, right? People want answers. They want reasons for what they do. <clears throat> So like I said, even the part of the country that we're in kind of represents the spirit of the age that was even back then was the setting for the book of Acts. So there's a lot that we can learn from this book as we apply it to our own situations and lives, our own people that we know and meet and interact with. Um, my hope has always been that Refuge Church wouldn't simply exist for convinced Christians. Right? And I, I think a lot of us that we would fit into that category. But I want this to be a church for people who are looking for answers to honest questions. They're, they're doubters. They're, they're seeking. They don't really know what Christianity is all about. But they're, they're willing to give it an honest look. They're open. Right? And I want this place to be a, a safe place for that. For people to be able to not believe in Jesus and have questions. And have us accept them and try to an answer them. Answer those questions and give them a reason for the faith that we have in us. <clears throat> Luke, in Acts in particular, is addressed to Theophilus. At the very beginning of chapter 1 of Luke, in Acts chapter 1, this is a sophisticated and cultured person, and he's writing this book to this man to prove Christianity to him. So it's very relevant um, to our situations around us, because we do, ha I think, have a lot of skeptical people in this area. He's trying to show Theophilus, not that Christianity can help him live a better life, right? but that it's true. He writes specifically to skeptical people. And if you read Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, you'll see that. Acts 1 is giving evidence for the truth of Christianity. The truth claims of Christianity. Now you might be sitting here this morning, I didn't realize that the Bible was so interested in proving that it is valid, that it's true. Well, of course it is. If it's not true, then we're wasting our time, aren't we? <laughs> 
Luke basically says that the truth sets you free by seeing that Christ is out, Christ is up, and Christ is in. And this is what we're going to look at in chapter 1 of Luke um, as we just kind of review some of its contents. Okay, Christ is out, Christ is up, and Christ is in. If you, if you understand Jesus in these three categories, the truth will set you free. They will know the truth and the truth will set them free. So let's look at Christ out first in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Underline many proofs. It's very important. The evidence for the truth of Christianity is out there. That's what I mean by Christ out. One teacher noted that people believe Acts was written by and for relatively superstitious people. Right? That's why people believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Because at the time, their culture just believed in superstitious things, supernatural things. This is the scientific age. We just don't believe this anymore. So so it goes. Back then, people believed in miracles. It was pre-scientific. Now we live in the scientific age. We're not as inclined to believe such things. So if we had someone walking around claiming a resurrection, we just immediately would dismiss it, not like them back then. Right? This is sometimes how people explain the presence and growth of Christianity. So these stories are by and for people who already believe in miracles and resurrections. We don't. Right? So that's why it took off back then. That's, so that's the explanation by some skeptics against Christianity. But honestly, when you take an honest look at the stories that we see in Scripture, the people back then acted a whole lot more like us than we think they did. <laughs> Right? In Matthew t- chapter 28, for example, we read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Who went to Galilee? Alright, that was terrible. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Who went to Galilee? Eleven disciples. Okay. You know who wasn't there? Greek philosophers and um, kings. and So in other words, people that knew Jesus intimately. That followed him everywhere and loved him. The 11, and not only just them, but the 11. Like these, this was his inner circle. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So Jesus is dead. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So there are people in his crew, of his 11, that saw him, and they saw him with his eyes, recognized that it was Jesus, but doubted what they saw. Okay? Just note that. Luke chapter 24, same thing. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. These things as in we just saw the resurrected Christ. Okay? But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Ridiculous! (laughs) And they did not believe them. Quote. Now, if that's not enough, remember Thomas. What is he called? The Doubting Thomas. Okay. In John, in the Gospel of John, it says, and by the way, every single Gospel talks about his personal and most intimate friends doubted that he had resurrected from the dead after they even saw him. Okay? Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see 
in his hands the mark of the nails, the place of my finger into the mark of that nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe you. Okay? So truth be told, really what would happen is Jesus appeared to people closest to him, not total strangers, people closest to him, they didn't, at first this is what would happen, they didn't recognize him. Jesus would be speaking to them and they didn't even realize it was Jesus. Then they started to recognize that it was him. It's the Lord, right? And, but even at that, after they started to recognize that it was Christ, they doubted that he had resurrected. Every time he showed up, he had to continually prove to them that he was really there. <laughs> Touch my side. Eat fish with me. It's me, right? It didn't matter how many fish he ate or how many times he showed up to them, he had to continually rehearse proving to them that he actually had, had resurrected from the dead. Now, why, if they were so gullible and so superstitious, would they not just believe right away, right, when they saw him? Now, it's, it is true, to be fair, it is true that people in their culture um, had more of a supernatural context than we do. That is true. They were different than the modern man, okay? But they did not believe in resurrections. They absolutely rejected it across the board. They acknowledged resuscitations, miraculous resuscitations, and there's a difference. Those who are, these are people who were raised from the dead after a long time. This is Lazarus, for example. They were raised from the dead after a long time, but again were susceptible to death. So in other words, they wouldn't continue, that's not a resurrection, it's a resuscitation. There's a different category for these guys in their minds. So, so anyone who potentially would miraculously receive life after they had died would eventually die again. That's resuscitation, but they rejected resurrections. But Jesus is going through locked doors after he resurrects and eats fish. This, in other words, this is not normal. This is not a resuscitation. He is not, sub, this is what they, they would conclude, he's not subject to death again. And that's why they doubted. Because what happened with Jesus was a, a resurrection. Greeks and Romans believed that the spirit was good and the flesh was bad. So they rejected, these were even non-Christian, non-Jewish people. They didn't believe in resurrections because the flesh is evil. Why would something that's evil get resurrected? It didn't make sense to them. There was absolutely no category for Greeks and Romans for resurrections. So in other words, if you wanted to trick people into following your, lie, your new lie religion, you wouldn't make up a resurrection. It's a bad idea. The only reason that they would claim a resurrection is because it was true, it happened. It's the only, it's the only benefit to them. Jews, Greeks, and so Jews, Greeks, and Romans wouldn't expect that Jews didn't even, not, not all Jews believed in resurrections. You remember the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Some Jews did believe in resurrections, but they only believed it in the context of the end of time. So in other words, at the end of time, everybody gets resurrected at the same time and the earth gets restored. There isn't like one isolated resurrection that passes through 4,000 years prior. So it's not a category for, for Jews either. Okay. So though they're different from us, they were just as biased against it and prone to believe that he had not resurrected from the dead. You see what I mean? So they were different from us, for sure, but they were just as biased at it um, as you and I would be. So if the resurrection was not what they were hoping for or expecting, why did they believe it? Now just do this mental exercise. If they're just as skeptical as you and I in our modern world, what kind of evidence would you need that he had resurrected from the dead? Just think about it. What would you need to prove that to yourself? We just have to assume that that's what they got because they were just as skeptical as we are. They must have received it. Don't think of this 
as subjective. In other words, don't think of the disciples' faith in Christ as some subjective thing. In other words, they just were believing in something that they wanted to believe in. That's subjective, right? They were forced, it's quite the opposite. They were forced to believe in something that they had utterly rejected because the evidence was too wide to reject. So they had to believe it in spite of their biases. You see what I mean? Now what's the application here? People often say that they're interested in Christianity because they need strength or courage, right? Inspiration. But can't lots of things do that? I watched Rocky the other day and I got all of that stuff. (laughs) Why do I need to become a Christian for that? If you approach Christianity this way, Oftentimes what you're going to do is you're going to pick out the things that inspire you and the things that seem oppressive or regressive. You're just going to reject that as archaic nonsense. Okay? So, so really what you're going to do is you're just going to pigeonhole everything. You're going to take everything out that, that seems good to you, that helps you feel good, but everything else just gets tossed out. Okay? So often when, when you approach Christianity this way, we, we want the things that can help us live happier lives but we are going to reject those things that are inhibiting to our own passions. Okay? So we, be, we begin, though, if we're starting here, we're beginning really at the wrong place. If we're simply asking if Christianity is relevant or practical or fulfilling. You know, before all of that, you need to ask, is it true? Because Tim Keller, I think, wisely noted, if it's true, it will be practical, it will be relevant, and it will be fulfilling. Let me give you an example of what I mean, or what he means. If someone dies, you're sure that the love of God is waiting for them without end on the other side. Wouldn't that not be practical? When a loved one passes, or a child... Isn't it incredibly relevant to our lives to know, first, that this is true? Because if we doubt that it's true, that changes everything. If you don't need to fear death, you don't need to fear anything, right? Now, now isn't that relevant? Isn't that practical? Isn't that fulfilling? So before you seek out Christianity to see whether it's practical or fulfilling, first seek seek out its truth. Is it true? Come to Christianity because it's true, and then it will fulfill you, I guarantee You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But for the truth to set you free, it's got to be more than just some kind of mental acquiescence to the resurrection. Okay, I believe in the resurrection, fill in the dot, sign your name. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than just Christ out. It's got to be Christ up. So number two, Christ up. Verse six. By the way, this text is in your program, so if I'm going a little quick, that's right in there. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit in uh, verses 6, I think, to 9. It says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Christ up. So here they're asking this loaded theological question. The Jews believed that Jesus Christ would reign on the earth over Israel, regather Israel, um, literal Israel, regather them to, to Jerusalem and be their king on David's throne. So they're saying, God, so Jesus has that arrived. And he says, hey, you know what? Um, 
we're not really here to solve that problem right now. <laughs> that will happen in the future. It doesn't really, it's not really relevant to us right now. What is relevant is that the spiritual kingdom of God has arrived in my resurrection and ascension. Let me explain to you what, it, what this means. Have you ever heard the expression man up? Man up, right? I don't like that expression, by the way. It kind of ticks me off, but anyway. Because what does that even mean? It doesn't matter. In other words, I think what it means, uh, actually, you know, if we can kind of make this statement virtuous, um, like a virtuous man up, I think what it means is to have courage, right? Have courage to do the right thing at the right time. Say something sharp if it needs to be said. Be merciful if you need to be merciful. Do the right thing, right? Have courage. Right? I think we need to change it, though, to Christ up. <laughs> Instead of making it us-centered, man-centered, we need to, we need to re- what I mean by that is we need to reorient our lives to the position of Christ and what he's doing for us right now. It's incredibly important if you're ever going to have the power and the virtue to make right choices, to be liberated in your desire to follow Jesus Christ. You first have to recognize who he is and what he's doing at this moment for you. And that's going, to be tr- that's going to be transformative power for us in our lives. So it's vital to consider that Christ is up, that Christ is ascended to be transformed ourselves. See, that sounds all kind of mysterious. What does this even mean? We'll get to that. He is ascended in heaven, and this is our power. If we stop at the resurrection, and indeed the resurrection is foundational, okay? That's how sin is conquered. That's how death is conquered. Jesus needed to die and resurrect from the dead. But it's only what is accomplished by the resurrection that really gives us transformative power. And that's what he does at his ascension. He goes to heaven. This is what makes his death and resurrection powerfully applicational to us in our lives. And I'll explain. He is not just raised. He's ascended. And that means that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. Okay? It is here spiritually and will come in the future literally, but in a very real sense, the kingdom of God has arrived because Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven at this moment. The Bible teaches that when Jesus Christ died and resurrected from the dead, we read it in our text, that he ascended into heaven. Now that's all it says in Acts, but we learn in other places in scripture what that actually means, what he does there. Okay? One pastor said, if you want to understand how the kingdom works now, understand the ascension. He ascended to the throne of the universe as king over all created things. And for all that believe in him, this fundamentally changes how we relate to God himself. Okay? Dr. Keller teaches that this happens in three ways. He says, relational intimacy historic strategy, and transforming advocacy. Okay? Relational intimacy, so this is Christ up. Because he is up, we have relational intimacy, historic strategy, and transforming advocacy. We're going to explain what these things mean. Okay? So upon the ascension, Christ... Excuse me. Upon the ascension of Christ, his people are given relational intimacy first. Now, do you recall who Mary Magdalene is in Scripture? She's in John chapter 20. Very close friend of Christ and the, and the disciples. Miraculously saved by his love and compassion. Um, Mary Magdalene begins to follow Jesus because she was forgiven greatly, if you remember her story. In John chapter 20, 
Um, Jesus re- is, is crucified. He resurrects, and Mary Magdalene is um, going to see, going to see, visit him at the tomb and finds him missing. And then Christ appears to him, to her. And it reads in John chapter 20, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and your father to my God and to your God. The, the text there literally means, don't squeeze me so tight. <laughs> this is very literal, okay? We kind of like impute some kind of like mystical, metaphorical type, do not cling to me. What it was, what, basically what it means, she was so elated that he was alive that he, she grabbed on so tight. And if, if we could have some kind of dramatic reading of this, it probably would seem like, Mary, don't hold on to me so tight. Right? That's literally what the word means there. Do not cling to me. She, why was she doing this? She was afraid of losing him again. She wanted to always be with Jesus. Relational intimacy. She had lost him once. She didn't want to lose him again. But he says, let me ascend. Mary, let me ascend. Because if I stay on earth, you'll have me sometimes. But if I go to heaven, you'll have me always. Because Mary, you're going to have to go to sleep eventually. We can't always be with each other. I'm going to go visit people and you're going to stay home. Right? We're gonna, if I stay, my, your experience of my presence is going to be limited. But if I go to heaven, everything changes. Ascension means the abiding presence of Christ always in our hearts in relational intimacy. Because Jesus says, when I ascend, the spirit of Christ will come upon you. And it will be, lo, I will be with you everywhere you go, even to the ends of the ages. Imagine this. Now think of a, a father and a son walking down the road. Dad is walking down the street, sidewalk with a six-year-old boy. And overwhelmed with lo- love for his boy, picks him up, gives him a great big squeeze. Whispers, I love you, son, I love you. Puts him down, right? Now, in, that, in, th- in those moments, is he any more a son than when he was walking with his dad? Is he more or less a son? Neither, right? Neither. He's just as much a son walking on the side and just as much a son in his arms, legally and everything. The boy is just as much a son either way. But friends, isn't it true that experientially there is a deeper sense of the father's love by his presence? Right? Proximity to the people that we love produce greater love for those people, right? Experientially, there is definitely a heightened sense of affection and presence when we hold our kids and we tell them we love them, isn't there? So what Jesus really is telling Mary, she's basically, he's basically saying, Mary, if you want me to walk with you, I can stay. But if you want me to pick you up and hold you, I have to leave. You see? So the ascension of Christ brings us the presence of Christ. Do you see that? Upon faith in Jesus Christ, we get him all the time. That's what you have, friend. Whether you feel it or not, or experience it as fully from one moment to another, the reality is that is yours in Christ by faith. Who loves you like that? Okay? Number two, historic strategy. The ascension means intimacy. And number two, it means historic strategy. <clears throat> Shakespeare said in Macbeth, Macbeth said this, Life is a tale told by an idiot 
<laughs> Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. We got some Shakespeare people in here. Okay. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Oh, miserable. Not, don't invite him to a party. <laughs> but is it true, right? Is it true that life is just kind of senseless, one thing after another, one misery, one joy? It just doesn't mean anything, right? It's all senseless, it all points nowhere, and it goes nowhere. That's basically what he means. Ephesians... The Apostle Paul in Ephesians tells us that the ascension of Christ, that Jesus was raised up by God, seated by the Father at his right hand, above all rule and authority, and places all things, underline, all things under his feet. Okay? It reads in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 1, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ has absolute authority over all things. Not some things, all things. He controls everything that happens in history for his people's good. Okay? Romans 8.28, we all know this one. If you're, you've been raised a Christian, come on, say it out loud with me. All things work together for the good. I'm sure this is going to be in our thing. To those who love him and are called according to his word, right? At the ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is given authority over all things that happen, good and evil. I know that that might trip us up. It might be hard to understand, but Jesus is head over all things. This is the throne that he occupies at the right hand of the Father. That means that evil is not arbitrary. That evil is not out of control. And it has a purpose. Okay? God did not design, by the way, he's not the author of death and violence and all of these evils that we see. It's there because of sin, because we've turned away from God. But Jesus controls those things, those bad things. Quote, using evil against itself to bring about good. Using evil against itself to bring about good. And by the way, if if you're having trouble understanding this, and you don't like the sound of it, please understand that Jesus Christ subjected himself to this at the cross. He used a great evil for profound good, right? So history has a strategy. It's not aimless, and it's not pointless. The cross, then, is the model of how Jesus Christ runs the world. The cross is the model of how Jesus runs the world. Quote, he uses the evil to defeat itself, to overrule it and bring about a greater good that would not have happened otherwise. You see? In this life, we might not see this fully. We might not understand it always. But knowing it and believing it brings us great hope. Now let me just kind of illustrate something here. There are two instances in the Old Testament of a, of a place called Dotham. Okay? You might say that's one of those arbitrary places in the Old Testament that I don't remember. Okay, well, I've had a hard time remembering Dothan, Dothan too. But Dothan is a place that we see two times in the Bible. One time is in 2 Kings chapter 6. Right? Excuse me. Elisha, an Old Testament prophet, prophet is trapped in Dothan. And there's this army about to besiege it and destroy him and everything there. 
trouble. So Elijah prays, right? How many people, this, is, this might be, you know, a little bit more extreme than what you used to, but how many people have ever been in imminent danger? Like something bad has happened, right? So Elijah starts to pray. And God, this is literally what happens. God immediately sends angelic hosts to protect and defend the city. You guys remember this story? Right? Now you say, well, that's the prayer life I want. That's results. <laughs> I don't like this weight and stuff. Right? I like results. And that's what Elijah got. So the, that's the first instance of Dothan. The second one, a few centuries prior, hundreds of years before this, Joseph is in a pit in the same, in the same little town. And he cries out to God. His jealous brothers didn't like him, threw him in a pit. And he cries out to God. And God doesn't answer. Actually, bad comes worse because he becomes a slave, puts into prison, and gets thrown into prison for years. Right? Same God, same kind of prayer, right? Same imminent danger, one immediate response, one seemingly nothing. He prays, nothing happens. Now, what's the point? God at times seems absolutely present, and at other times, he seems terribly distant, doesn't he? But he's always present. You see, we don't get it. We don't get why we're in the pit, and we don't get why we're in prison. We don't get it yet. But those of you who know the end of the story of Joseph know why God did those things. Because God was putting evil on its ear. He was using evil to defeat itself. And friends, that's what we have in Christ. Christ, the conqueror, uses evil, the, de- the, the murder at the cross, to conquer death and to give us eternal salvation and forever love with God's presence with him. That's what he does with evil. So if you'd rather have evil without God and have it be arbitrary like Shakespeare, you know, that, that can be how you want to see life. Or you can... Or you can believe that Jesus has allowed it for greater good. Pick a road. It's your choice. He's always present. He's never absent. The ultimate defeat of evil is for it to undermine itself, like we just said, continuing that same idea. To undermine itself, bring a good that never would have been without it. Okay? And that's the cross. That's the gospel. That's our hope and the tragedies of life. We don't ultimately know why, but the cross and the ascension should remind us that there is a greater good being worked. God's historic strategy. Amen? Number three. The ascension should teach us Christ's transforming advocacy. Now, if you thought that other stuff was good, put your seatbelt on. Okay? This is the best part. Okay? When the Bible talks about the ascent, uh, about ascension to a throne, Jesus ascended to the throne, the right hand of God in heaven. It's referring to power and justice. We think of a, the, a king's throne as like that's where, that's his authority. He has power. He oversees his kingdom, and he has the rule of authority at his throne. But it's more than that. A throne in the ancient Near East is a place of power and justice. Okay, the throne room in the ancient world was a courtroom. It was both. So it actually, in Bristol, Rhode Island, you can go down and visit the seat, the throne of King Philip. He was a Native American, the son of Massasoit. And at this throne, you guys know where this is? There's a hill, right, in, uh, 
in, in Bristol, and this is where the, the center of government was for the, for the Indians that occupied this area back then. Okay? <clears throat> and this throne was the center of both power and justice for the early Native Americans that lived in this area in the 1600s. The throne of Christ carries the same kind of imagery. That it's not only a seat of authority, it's a seat of justice. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make intercession for them. Okay? The reason he can save you from your sin, is be, the, the reason that you are saved from your sin, let me say it like that, is because Jesus is in heaven right now interceding for you. What does that mean? This sounds really kind of abstract. 1 John chapter 2 calls Christ our advocates, the same kind of thing, our propitiation. So basically what all of this means is that Jesus is our lawyer in the throne room, the place of justice of God in heaven. So in the courtroom of the universe, where the Father sits as judge over all things, we have Jesus Christ pleading our case. Right? Say, uh-oh. I'm in trouble. Right? Let's keep going. What's this mean? And why is it important for us to know that Jesus intercedes for us? That the truth in this, will remember what I said at the beginning? You've got to understand this. If the truth is going to set you free, you have to understand this. Let me ask you a simple question so I can help you understand what all this means. Why are some of us so concerned about how we look? We spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of ab crunches on this, right? <laughs> and a lot of money. And by the way, some of us who seem like we don't care about it, we actually do. <laughs> right? right? You know, just because our shirts aren't ironed and we have a spare tire doesn't mean that we don't look in the mirror, right? <laughs> the reason, I think, is because we know... We know something very fundamental and very true about life is that when we walk by a person, they're casting a verdict. They're making a judgment. Right? Lazy, ugly, dumb, smart, beautiful, attractive. Right? And it's not just how we look, it's also how much money's in our pocket, like all sorts of things. People cast verdicts. With, in particular, with the way we look, we know that people are walking by and they're saying, ooh. Right? Or wow. Or that or like that Bugs Bunny, right? When he turns into a wolf and his and his tongue rolls out. Woo! <laughs> we know people are doing that. They cast verdicts. And we want to be the person that makes other people turn into wolves. Right? <laughs> well maybe you don't, but you getting me? People cast verdicts. Arthur Miller is a playwright. He says this in After the Fall. I think, please hear this, he's not a Christian, but he's really connecting well, I think, with with a lot of what we go through as human beings. I think that for many years, I looked at all of life like a case at law. All of life like a case at law. A series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are. Or smart. Then when you're older, what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict. A verdict would be cast on our lives with a big thumbs up. 
we know that there's a verdict out there that's saying, you know what, he did it. You did it. Good job. Right? And we have a lot of different ways in which we want to get that good job or that thumbs up, right? You know? All of us in everything we do are looking for a verdict. The verdict of the opposite sex, the verdict of a parent, the verdict of a friend or a teacher, whatever. And you know, every school teacher you've ever, ever heard, right, in your life, and if you were one of my school teachers in this room right now and you said this to me, I apologize. Because <laughs> I, well, here we go. Um, every school teacher you ever had, right, says, you know what, it doesn't matter what people think about you, right? All that matters is what you think of yourself. Bunk! That doesn't work. We know that that doesn't work. We need people from the outside to tell us that we've done it. We need a verdict to come from outside of ourselves because we know that we're not the, the judge, the arbiter. We don't, we, are we judging ourselves correctly? We're looking for verdicts for people to say, great, well done, I knew you could do it, a boy. If you think you're great and everyone else around you thinks you're a jerk, that matters, right? <laughs> we need outsiders. All of us need this. And you can say, no, that's, you know, I don't like the, what you're saying. It's, it's built into us. I'm just telling you right now. It's built into us to reject what I'm saying. Because we are, we are trained to, to, to say that all that matters is what we think. But does that work? Because who's our big, biggest critic, friends? Us. We don't live up to our own standards. We fail ourselves. Our verdicts crush us too. Right? We're so desperate to prove ourselves because, this is what Miller was saying, because we feel like we're in a courtroom. That there is a judge that's going to decide whether or not we did it. Now, maybe you've seen on TV or lived this, out, this, this situation, this scenario out in your own life. Right? You meet someone for the first time, immediately attracted to them. You wonder if they're looking at you, too. Right? You connect, you start talking, sparks fly. Later on that, you, that night you meet for a drink and you end up having sex. You both, you get up the next morning, middle of the night, walk away from it, walk of shame. Right? You both agree, you know what, this just happened, no relationship, no future, it was fun, thank you. And you both agree to this and you walk away. Now this is dangerous for a lot of different reasons. Okay, it shouldn't be done. But we're all tempted to this. There's something in us that I think all of us, maybe not everybody, but I think most people understand why that happens. Why does that happen? We know it's wrong, but still, why does it happen? What's so alluring about this situation? And I think it's because we are absolutely desperate to hear someone tell us, even if they don't mean it, that we're beautiful. Well done. Never seen anyone like you before. And there's something about a situation like that, something about sex, I'll just say it, that communicates that in a very physical way. You can use words or not use words. We need this. We need that verdict. That's why we end up in situations like this. And by the way, when we end up in those situations, it actually casts a deeper, harder verdict on us because we realize it didn't work. Right? Even if you don't believe in God, deep down you know there is one. Deep down you know that there are standards you need to live up to, but you don't live up to them. And deep down you know that even your own standards you don't live up to. Isn't it true? 
Therefore, we are desperate for other people to tell us a positive verdict. To tell us something that sometimes we know that we're even not. We're striving for good verdicts. And even when we get them, they leave us unhappy and unfulfilled, don't they? I had this guy once. He came up to me and just paid me a very little compliment. And I felt on top of the world. Wow, I'm great. That's how it made me feel. So encouraged. But then two seconds later, I'm in the dumps again. Because you want to know why? Sometimes I hit, I hit the ball and it goes out of the park. And sometimes I throw the bat out of my hands and hit someone in the head. Right? That's just it. That's us. That's the human race. Join the club. At the end of the day, no matter how much good someone says of us, we know something lacks. We haven't measured up unless, unless Jesus has ascended and pleads for us day and night. Unless that. Unless he represents us as our lawyer in the courtroom of heaven. That when we fail, when we sin, he represents us. And you say, well, that doesn't really bring me comfort. And I think sometimes it doesn't bring us comfort because we really consider it like this. Well, I, I sin. Right? So I, I struggle with the sin, I do it again. So, okay, so Jesus goes to the Father, he intercedes for me, and he says, You know, Kyle, you know how he said he wouldn't do X and Y anymore? Well, he did X again, and Y. Right? Um, can you give him another chance? Oh, okay. Okay, Jesus, we'll give him another chance. That's how we see, that's how we see this exchange. Right? How, how long can Jesus keep that up? <laughs> But understand, though, thinking of it like this, you're you're thinking of Jesus as a pleader and not a lawyer. Someone who is looking for mercy and not justice. Jesus in heaven is demanding justice, not mercy. And that's very different and that's very important. Scripture tells us that it was mercy that Jesus died for us, for our sin, But now that he has died for us, we don't receive mercy from God. We receive justice from God. Because our sin is gone. Our sin is forgiven. God would be unjust to condemn anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. Because it's gone. So therefore, friends hear this, there is no accusation that can be made against you. None. You're beautiful, friend. The verdict's in. Jesus intercedes for what's been done for us on our behalf. It is unjust for God to judge you now. Friends, that's what it means that Christ has interceded for you. I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice. You are clean. You are wonderful. And we are these things because if we've had faith in Christ, all of these things have been cleared by God through Christ. And all that's left in me is not my sin, but his glory. Okay? That's the finished work. It's done. It's gone. So if you fail again tomorrow, you are just as beautiful and just as radiant and just as amazing to God. The verdict's in. When God looks at you, he doesn't say, oh, what a bum. He messed up again. I guess I'll forgive him. No, he looks at you and sees the risen Christ without spots, without wrinkle. (coughs) And our jobs as Christians is to align our own beliefs about ourselves with how God believes 
about us, right? That's the deal. And this leads us to that, that, you know, the know the truth. The truth will set you free. Christ out, Christ up, Christ in, number three, right? The, our transformation, the truth of Christianity is Christ out, Christ up, Christ in. If you are in Christ, the verdict is in. You are beautiful, you are gorgeous, you are successful, you are all those things. You don't need to prove yourself anymore. It's done. Amen? You say, oh, great, I'm just going to be lazy. Isn't, isn't it funny that that's not what happens to us? when We work probably harder and happier and more successfully when we know that. Okay? You don't have to be driven anymore. We're afraid. You don't have to work to the bone or tear your clothes off for anybody anymore. The verdict's in. You have value because of what Christ has done. People say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian because I can't sin. Do you, you, do you know what you're saying? Do you really know what you're saying? Like, the, I, I want to sin. You realize what you're saying, right? Do you realize what sin is? It's an endless struggle to prove yourself. And it never works. It always condemns you. So you think, oh, I'll be, you know, if I have lots of money and I cheat and steal and sleep with lots of girls, that'll make me feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm powerful and I'm, I'm all these... No, nope, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It actually shows you the opposite, that you're none of those things. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ridiculous cycle that never works. You're, you offend God and you're crushing yourself for the reason why you're even created. When the verdict of God waits for you, if you simply just come to Him and believe in Him, that Jesus Christ... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you want life? Or do you want Arthur Miller's struggle? Do you want Shakespeare's stupid written by an idiot? Right? Life's written by an idiot. Do you want that? Because that's, that's, that's the alternative. Without Jesus Christ, that's the alternative. You're, you're going to endlessly look for verdicts that you, are, that you matter and you'll never find it. You only find it in Jesus Christ. And the reason for it is because he made you. He created you and he's desperately in love with you. Come today to him. Christ in. Let that transform you. Let him in. We apply, you know, if, if we are looking for pleasure in sin we actually find the means to our own undoing and misery. But when the ascension is drawn to our heart, courage is released, poise, worth. You know Stephen, you remember Stephen in, in the New Testament? Stephen's getting stoned by his enemies. You know, what's he thinking at the time? Oh, I'm such a bum. I can't believe I did this. And, you know, like if I was smarter, like Peter... Maybe I'd still be alive and they would have got saved. That's not what's happening in his mind, right? Because Stephen believed the verdict, that the verdict was in, that he was declared righteous in heaven, because that was more fixed in his mind and more important to him than the verdicts of the people throwing rocks at him, he had great joy in his dying breath. He didn't need them to think he was something great. And he didn't even need to think of himself as, as something great. 
You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4? I don't care much how you judge me. I don't even judge myself. You remember when he said that? What? Because we're wrong when we judge it. We don't, we don't know. That's why Stephen was so radiant and so happy and so forgiving of the people throwing rocks at him. How can you do that? How is it possible to love and forgive someone who has constantly cast unfair negative verdicts on you your whole life? How do you forgive them and not hate and be bitter for the rest of your life? How do you do that? It's simple. You don't believe their verdict. They are wrong. Their verdict is a lie. Your verdict is a lie. Jesus' verdict is the truth. You believe the Jesus, the just verdict of Christ in heaven, you'll be able to love. You'll never be able to love. Only hate if all you see, if, if, excuse me, you'll never be able to love and only hate if all you need in life is positive, positive verdicts from God's creation. You need positive verdicts from the creator, not the creation. And if you look for it from the creation, you're going to hate his creation. Aren't you? Because it doesn't work. So if you're touchy because you've been slighted, if you're driven to prove yourself, the ascension has not been drawn into your heart. And friends, I would encourage you to draw the ascension into you. Do you think of Christ as, as ascended or, or that mousy guy holding a sheep? Right? John saw Jesus in Revelation as lightning and fire and beauty, didn't he? Think about him ascended until the joy starts. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, this very moment, if you believe that he died for your sins and rose again, the verdict will be in on your life. The verdict will be in. Would you trust in him? Would you recognize that your sin has separated yourself from him? That he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for sinners like you so that your relationship with God could be restored and so that you could stop seeking meaning for yourself in the creation and find it in the creator. Would you come to him in faith this moment? Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God, we love you, and we thank you for your kindness to us. Let your people be reminded, as we forget oftentimes, that the verdict is in. In Jesus' name, amen.